with something very special to end with, an episode of one of the weirdest television shows ever. It is, of course, The Prisoner, starring Patrick McGowan, and it really is great fun right now. Come in, number six. <laughs> Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. Those were the unmistakable jam-like tones of uh, Frank Muir uh, talking about uh, The Prison on TV Heaven, which we'll talk about later, but we're going to do something a bit different uh, this week. Chris? Yeah, this is a very special episode. We're going to look at everything that's happened chronologically that has introduced people to The Prisoner. Yes. The reason that we're talking today is because we discovered the show thanks to an airing in 1992. But we've got some interviews, haven't we, from... Um, from oh, yeah, Dave Barry, yeah. from Rick Davey, from Rob Fairclough, from uh, Ant Briley. So it, it's going to be a real love letter, I think, yeah, episode yeah. this. So let's hear from somebody who was actually there. And I don't mean in 1967, I mean 1966. By God. Yes. Origin stories. So let's hear from Six of One founder, Dave Barry. My name's Dave Barry, and after Danger Man, I was intrigued by what McGowan might do next. He was clearly a man of substance. And I happened to be on holiday in North Wales, in Port Maddock, which, as you know, is a mile from Port Merion, Mm. in the summer of 1966. I opened the newspaper, and it said, McGowan's making his latest series in the Welsh Italianite village of Port Merion. And it showed a picture of him with his pipe blazer and running. And it was all very secretive. And I thought, well, I'm only a mile. I'll have to go and have a look. So the September of 66, we were blessed. It was a wonderful, sunny period of time, unbroken by rain. So I went over in my car, parked, and I walked into the village that was reasonably busy. I noticed on the way in, on the right-hand side, just past the toll gate, there was um, a building in which squatted a rather unusual-looking vehicle, and I couldn't really make it out because I'd never seen anything like it before. Well, in fact, that was the Mark I Rover <laughs> that really looked like a blancmange on steroids <laughs> with uh, a blue light on top. So I walked under a Bridge House and came out, burst out into Battery Square, and I looked down... And they were just taking up the chessboard and there were four mini mokes on the piazza with lots of people dressed up in fancy dress uniform. And of course, I caught them between the ending of Checkmate and a scene from Dance of the Dead. Now with filming, as you know, if you've attended any, you know it's <laughs> from the outside, it appears very slow. So I saw McGowan, and he was busy talking. I saw what I now know was a director, Don Chaffee. 
Angelo Muscat was down on the beach with his shirt sleeves pulled up, with his hand busy in the sand, apparently looking for dabs. There was George George Kularis wandering about in costume, and also Ronald Rad, who played the Rook. So, you know, I stayed for about an hour, an hour and a half, but I was bored. <laughs> I thought, well, there's nothing happening here, nothing to see, move on. And so I thought, right, well, this looks intriguing. I must I must find out more about it when it comes on TV. I'm looking forward to this. So where do you think Arrival was first aired? On TV? Mm. Um, well, no, gra- regional TV. Canada. Canada aired <laughs> Arrival on the 5th of September 1967. Why? Why? <laughs> Isn't that great? Well, yeah, damn Canada. <laughs> I think we should give Canada some credit there. Because, you know, if you go to a lot of the uh, the websites or Wikipedia and stuff, it'll say 29th of September or the 1st of October. The Canadians. Those damn Canadians. First. Yeah, isn't that lovely? <laughs> but as you know, our initial run uh, was from 1967 to 1968 in the UK hmm. uh, with, with HTV, Harlech Television, in Wales, not screening the show until 1970. I think that's ins- ins- isn't absurd. That crazy? Yeah, but, but the initial run included repeats of, as well that ran into 1972. But that weekend, I mean, we've talked about what was on TV on the 29th, <laughs> yeah. the, the forearm guy. Yes. <laughs> Let's not forget that there was a lot going on that weekend in the UK. Engelbert Humperdinck was at number one with the last waltz. Uh, Harold Wilson and the Labour Party were at number 10. Hey. Not in the charts in <laughs> Downing Street. With Sing Little Birdie. <laughs> it's Harold Wilson and the Labour Party. <laughs> Sadly, that weekend, Woody Guthrie died. Uh, you know the folks, yeah, singer, of course, yeah. father of uh, Arlo. Captain Scarlet first aired uh, on the 29th, same day as The Prisoner. Really? Yeah. Oh, Red Letter Day. <laughs> of course, Francis Matthews yeah. and his wife, Angela Brown, who turns up in Change of Mind. Uh, Radio One launched. On the Saturday, on the 30th. With Flowers in the Rain. Flowers in the Rain by The Move. And in America, the number one was The Letter by The Box Tops. So, what a teddy time to be alive. What a weekend. Yeah. The prisoner, Captain Scarlet. Prisoner yeah. water cooler moments on Monday. Did you, what, what did you do? I don't know, so much. The so 60s person going, what's a water cooler? No idea. <laughs> <laughs> so HTV, or Harlech Television, as you know, we, yeah. we talked about Wales didn't get it till January the 7th, 1970. HTV West... Also late with their first airing of The Prisoner on July the 7th, 1969. Well, that, yeah, I mean, that would have been us. We were, we were vivid memories of watching everything on HTV. But they weren't the last country or the last English-speaking country to get The Prisoner. So Wales may have had it in 1970. <laughs> Who cut it after that? The Republic of Ireland didn't see The Prisoner until 1979. What? Yeah. <laughs> On the 19th of June, 1979... The brand new... Yeah, <laughs> Republic of Ireland saw the series Why, for the first Was time. there a p- political, any particular reason? That's, that's shoddy incompetence, really, no on the idea. part of the, the bookers. Who knows? So, let's see what some of our Twitter followers have to say. Indeed. And we're very lucky that some of our Twitter followers actually saw the show during its first run. Indeed, yes. Uh, including Mike. And he said, uh, I was ten... My intellectual, in inverted commas, cousin was a fan and he tried to convince my dad it was worth a watch. Thereafter, I was always attracted to anything prisoner-related, each viewing in subsequent years drawing me in and many years attending the Six of One convention was the final hook. I think that's lovely, having that family member who's recommended 
yeah. of the show. It's Word like, of mouth. It's like getting into music because your older brother likes it. Yeah, getting into a TV show because a family member said, mm. oh, you'd like this. Yeah. Yeah, my, bro- yeah, my brother and I have this. We both mm. got into obviously, at the same time. I don't know, maybe. But he's two years younger than me. But we, we both, we can both do prisoner gags. <laughs> yes. um, so it's burned, burned onto our brain yeah. permanently. Well, funny enough, my first experience of The Prisoner, or the first time I'd heard about The Prisoner, was on a car journey. I think coming back from visiting relatives up in Bolton, my dad started talking about something, and then he's talked about The Prisoner. And the concept, the idea, you know, about this man being chased and set in a holiday camp, uh, being chased <laughs> by this large white ball, like the sci-fi, the fantasy elements, and said that my, I remember my dad said, oh, you'd love it. And in my head... As, as you do when you're a child, like, like we discussed in The Girl Who Was Death, yeah. you kind of contextualise it with your own yeah, yeah, yeah. examples, don't you? So I imagine Geoffrey Holland from Heidi High, or someone <laughs> like him, being chased around Maplins. <laughs> do you remember the British Film Foundation? Yeah. The film, it was, I can't remember what it was called now, it was like Rollerball or something, those little balls <laughs> from space that were chasing Ron Pember around. And... Uh, I just imagine these like ping pong balls chasing Jeffrey Holland around the Maplins because that was my context. Yeah. Norman says he watched the first episode on Sunday, the 1st of October, 1967, the first showing in the London ITV area, two days after being shown on ATV Midlands. Always enjoyed Danger Man, even viewing The Prisoner now, it still intrigues, and no way does it look over 55 years old. It doesn't? Unless you watch it on the Precision. Yeah, which case looks like it was shot in a 55-year-old camcorder. So Edison walks past in (laughs) sepia tone. Artie, but he watched it as a kid when it first aired, but have understood it more and more as the years went by. Watched it again recently. It's more relevant now than it ever was. Truly ahead of its time, or maybe we've become more aware. That's a good question. That's a good point, actually, isn't it? Because I think we've noticed connections with the 21st century and and how technology has gone. And certainly there is a lot of prescience there. And I think a lot of it is intentional, but some of it is just pure luck. Mm. McGowan has had that foresight, or he's been lucky in in premonitions of how technology will be going. I mean, that, that... link we put on the Twitter page, the quote where he talks about this unrealised project. Yeah, yeah. You know, which is basically like you stated, it's like Alexa. (laughs) You know, where the gadgets are doing the talking for us. We're losing the power of speech. That goes back to what you said about the pubs. You know, sat in a pub having a conversation with somebody, having a debate, having an argument. But it also goes back to his, the penny farthing thing, Mm. his his main stated... um, objection to technology so basically the way that we just accept uh, technology as soon as it arrives we never question it and we never he, he, we never have that sort of period of reflection where we go no. so, is this going to how is this going to affect us how is this going to change us we, we just kind of take it all and slowly but surely we're taken over by it it's yeah. it's, it's advancing too quickly it, that that is something that we haven't learned no. i think that's one of the reasons the prisoner still maintains its its kind of cultural impact, the allegory. Yeah. It, they all still stand up. It wasn't something that was sort of like disproved mm. at the end by the end of the 60s or something like that. It's like you only watch kind of films about sort of hippie nirvana and utopia mm. and you realise that within six months of that f- fizzled out, our relentless addiction to somehow making our lives easier mm. or less less effort. Yeah. Alexa, for crying out, who, I mean, who on earth thought that we needed somebody to invent something that mm. would prevent us from having to stand up and turn on 
a, a light switch. <laughs> so you can imagine, that, oh, every time I walk in the room, do you know what I have to do before I do anything else? Yeah. I have to reach over and t- if only I could just shout out a woman's name. <laughs> and not only would the lights come on, but I could choose the music. Oh, I'm insufferable having to walk over and tune the radio on. Oh, God. <laughs> so I've invented this and it's just... And, and a, Immediately, everyone buys it. They fill the house with all this stuff, mm. and we don't. And not need do we not need it, but it's it's doing stuff to us. Yes, and I think he McGowan was aware of that, was afraid of that, and wanted to challenge that fifty odd years ago. Yeah. So we we have a, a decade now. We have nine years, or the wilderness years, oh. as uh, we could call it, where you know there are reruns. The show has been broadcast in many regional areas in the UK. Yeah. It didn't reach the US until the first of June. 1968. Mm. So, as it, the British show just wrapped up, really, uh, the Americans it, saw it. They, I think David Barry was saying, didn't they basically put it on in the summer? Yeah, June, it, 1st of June. Which, in a, in a kind of way, it's almost like dead space. You'd, you'd imagine TV in the summer. So, do you remember Barry Norman's used to, always used to finish for the summer? And you yeah. think, well, that's when the best films are coming yeah. out. Why? Take, but t- TV, you, you, you go out in the summer, yeah, you don't yeah, sit yeah. and watch TV. So it was almost like, well, I've no idea what the hell this thing is. McGowan's in it, but we used to have all those those trails on BBC One, didn't you? Coming this autumn on BBC One. Exactly when TV starts again. Yeah, Michael Barrymore looks at fish. <laughs> it's all that kind of stuff, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, did the the whiff of failure from the British release to Fallout sort of? Uh, well, I don't know because the way the, the Americans was it ABC. Well, Granada, who were the region who were based up in the northwest, the Manchester uh, area, was was the Granada Studios. So mm. they make Coronation Street and you know Northwest Tonight, all that kind of stuff. Um, they were the first region to start a UK repeat run mm. of the series. One of my colleagues at the college saw it on the Granada repeat run. In the, that was the first uh, time. When was yeah, that? Early 1970s. Oh. Uh, the remaining UK regions, with the exception of Yorkshire TV, also repeating the series over the next year or two. Mm. And that's that's from the unmutual.co.uk. Well, I mean, it, the the viewing figures that we've seen, for, even for the poorer episodes, I mean, we're, we're vast. But do you think, when I mean, it's all talk about the wilderness years, do you think that that... The perception that Fallout was a mess, and actually there was the, the anger and all that kind of the the, the, the yeah, like I say, the, the whiff of failure. Do you yeah. think that affected it during the seventies? Perception. It's possible. So let's hear from somebody who saw the show on the first run. Six of one founder, Dave Barry. So in uh, September. I think it was, 67. And we sat down on a Sunday evening, 7.25, to watch McGowan's new offering, which, of course, we all thought would be an extension of Danger Man. So Arrival unfolded, and its breathtaking speed and rapidity of cuts caught us off guard. It was just so, what I suppose you would now call, in your face. It was rapid, 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 blink, and you'd miss it. And we still thought that we were getting into Danger Man Part 2. You know, here's a secret agent who's resigned, and he finds his way around this idyllic village, which we gradually realise isn't idyllic. And towards the end of that particular episode, you think, well, he's going to escape. And then, you know, we'll pick up where we left off in the previous series. And at the end of it, of course, we didn't. Well, 
I was hooked, absolutely hooked. My parents were intrigued, I suppose you could say. Anyway, we watched the series unfold. We didn't miss it. Uh, each Monday, we'd go into work and I'd ask my colleagues what they thought and we'd discuss it because that's what you did then. But it was ephemeral. Come fallout and it was gone. And for me, fallout absolutely sealed it in my mind. That was wonderful. It was surrealism let loose. It was a triumph. And as was the way it had, it had gone and we all got on with our lives. And then from time to time you'd meet someone and you'd think, well, I could raise the prisoner with them. And you'd say, do you remember? And they'd say, yeah, weren't it good? So time went by, a decade, and uh, I moved to Cheltenham. And I didn't take a radio or TV time, so I used to wander in at night and turn the TV on and see what was on. God, it was the prisoner being rescreened. But I always contrived to miss the beginning, so I never realised that the continuity announcer was reading out letters from people that had written in with their comments on the series. And I thought, you know, I want to meet these people. So I rang ATV as it, as it was, and I said, oh, you know, I'd love to meet these people. And they were very cagey. And they said, well, you know, we can't reveal people's details. Write in. So I wrote a letter. I didn't have a telephone, but uh, it, was, it was only, of course, when I saw just before once upon a time that all these people were writing in. So everything happened very rapidly over the period of a week. So on the Saturday morning, because they couldn't contact me, I had a letter in the post, first class. Ring me urgently, said this lady, which I did. And she said, look, I'm at home, I'm off duty, but would you be prepared for your details to be screened after fallout tonight? <laughs> Not off, I said. There we were. Half past 11 at night, there's fallout. Oh, magic. But will it happen? Will they transmit my details? Well, they did. And the continuity announcer said, if you want to know more about this series, please contact David Barry, blah, 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 with my address printed up. And I thought that was a real hoot. And so off I went to bed. The house was in darkness. An hour later, at two o'clock in the morning, there was a knock at the door. I walked downstairs and um, opened the door and there were four tall, early figures. Are you Dave Barry? Yes, I squeaked, turning on the light. Uh, you better come in. We've come about the prisoner. <laughs> They're driven down from Sutton Coldfield to Cheltenham, which was about an hour and a half in those, those days. Half an hour later, another couple turned up from Oxford and uh, I think I got rid of them about four or five in the morning. And I thought, what have I started? So then I was out on the Sunday and I got home to find about a dozen letters pushed through my door. Hello, hello, what's going on? Monday was silent, but Tuesday, that was it. I couldn't believe it. The postman was stuffing wads of envelopes through my letterbox. And this continued until after a fortnight, I had over 700 letters, not nationally, but only 
from the central region, the Midlands. And I thought, my God, I've got to do something about this. So fortunately, two local people, Roger Goodman and Judy Adamson, had beaten a path to my door. So between the three of us, we managed to organise it. And Roger and Judy shouldered the workload of writing back to all these people. And we got our society off the ground. Well, I was contacted by the local paper while I was away at Christmas time. And I came back to find a letter pushed through my door from them. And they said, can I come round and interview you? And he did. And uh, the next thing I know, I'm getting contacted by the daily papers, the Daily Mirror, the Sunday Express, et cetera, et cetera, who had all picked up on this story. And before we knew it, we were kind of national headlines. So 1977. Mm. Can you imagine Britain at the time? With You've got the punk uh, era coming in, the new wave era coming in slightly after that as well. You've got the Queen's Silver Jubilee, this whole wave of patriotism. I mean, the, the 70s in Britain was quite turbulent. Lots of things happened oh, yeah. in a very short space of time, really, that affected Britain, including London Weekend Television, or LWT, screening The Prisoner again. Yeah, in 77. In 77, on Saturday the 11th of June, PBS, the public broadcasting service in the US, showed the series in 1978-79 without ad breaks. Bless them. So as we would see it on Blu-ray and DVD. And San Francisco-based station Channel 9 showed it in 1980 before the show was syndicated throughout the 80s and 90s. One of our lovely uh, Twitter followers called uh, Lost in Transition said, I was at school, so possibly late 70s, early 80s. I'd never seen anything like it. The title sequence first caught my attention. It was sharp, it was energetic. The characters were strange. The settings extremely odd. I don't know why I felt I understood it, but I felt I did. I think this comment highlights how ahead of its time the show was. Yeah. Because Lost in Transition saw this at the latter end of the 1970s. Yet this show was already a decade old. Mm. Yet something about the style, the editing, the pace really spoke to them. Yeah. And, of course, you imagine seeing that in 1967. You know, we've watched The Avengers. We've watched all those shows that are around at the same time. They're very, very slow by today's yeah. standards, aren't they? Laurel says, 1977, KQED, local PBS station, ran the series. I missed the first episode because it did not seem interesting when I saw it in the TV guide. But I watched second because there was nothing on and I was instantly addicted. It got rerun many times in the late 70s and early 80s. Mm. So not only in the UK is it having this rebirth, but stateside, they're also... Yeah. Showing the show, kind of various uh, stations. vindicates the idea, the the uh, the plan to put Chimes with Big Ben second as well. Because, mm. like you said, second episode, you need a good strong one. Yes, you uh, keep that momentum going, don't you? Otherwise, Laurel would have just abandoned it. But KQED, I believe, is uh, California-based. Uh, uh, yeah, network. KQED. Yeah, you can imagine going. But Casey Casey. I'm not going to attempt to do the American <laughs> accents, just so I don't insult any of our American yeah. listeners. Well, I may, I may have just done, so apologise. <laughs> Mark says it's one of my earliest TV memories. It was on our public TV channel uh, here in the early 70s when I was a kid. Got to visit Port Merion a few years back and it was fantastic. I love the fact that this is a standing set. Yes. An exterior set that still looks as it did in 1966-67. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of virtual reality experience, isn't it's, it? It's bizarre. I'm, I'm I'm in it. I'm here. I'm there. Oh my yeah. god! There's the green dub. There's the prisoner's house. Yeah, you know, it's there's the stone boat. You can visit Port Marion and be transported back in time. Vaughan says, I read an article about it in the New Musical Express, probably around 1976, 1977. The series was being repeated at the time. I begged my dad to be allowed to watch it. I was hooked after about a minute. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's nice to watch with your dad. Yes. Well, I used to watch Monty Python and The Twilight Zone with my dad. And yeah. That's like good memories. Yeah, you know, yeah, being yeah. Being interested in something that was uh, the same kind of thing. My thing was The Muppet Show. Okay. Because that was the only thing that I liked that Dad liked as well. Yeah. There was a, I remember watching one with Debbie Harriet. Maybe that was the appeal. But I can remember him <laughs> sort of, you know, Jenny Meany laughing and yeah. sort of uh, uh, explaining to me who the references yeah. were. You know, animals based on Keith Moon, don't you? Yeah. All that. Uh, yeah, no, I, I worked with Ronnie Varel on, a, I think it was a Sid Lawrence Orchestra show or something like that. He was the drummer. He was Animal. He was Animal, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, he was the drummer in Frank Skinner's Skinnerettes band. And I remember one of my colleagues saying, you know who that is, don't you? It's Ronnie Varel. And I'm like, who? Like, it's Animal. Animal, man. It's Animal. I was like, what? I was in, what? Really? Yeah, he did the, the live drums for Animal. <gasps> and instantly, this like old man suddenly became fascinating. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so, yeah, 77, we have the first prisoner convention at Port Marion. And Cliff Williams Ellis... Was, was he there? there? Of course he was. Yeah. So get off my land. <laughs> yeah, keep, weirdos. Please keep on the grass. Yeah. <laughs> Clough, of course, being the, the architect. Yes, the genius. The dream weaver of Port Marion. Yeah, the society held the events annually from 77 onwards. Well, there was a few years that, that they weren't able to. But, of course, it started to build up momentum yeah. from that point. So, of course, Dave's got these people knocking on his door at 2, 3 in the morning, having these conversations, and a society is born. I mean, we're talking about a pre-internet era. And, and then when the internet arrived, before it became, you know, domesticated, as, as we all know it, and I think most people started adopting it mid to late 90s, you'd have these, like, notice boards, internet notice boards, where people could talk about the prisoner. But, of course, then you'd have to have that, Technology, you'd have to have a computer with a modem and, mm. you know, money to spend on a phone bill, <laughs> you know. But, so this was a brilliant way of getting together prisoner devotees, prisoner followers, to find out more about the series they loved. They were, they were very, very important, I think, a very, very important part of, of, of continuing the legacy of the prisoner. Yeah. Of, you know, because it, it kind of needed, it needed rescuing from a slightly iffy reputation mm. and reclaiming it's like no 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 you don't understand this is a, this is a classic and and look at all these external things come to Port Merion look at this it's important well by 1985 the prisoner shop opened it, oh really Max Horror Max Horror yeah. yeah and of course Port Merion kindly gave number six his house but I think that's lovely that it's it's starting to see this momentum people are starting to visit it from all over the world mm to come in to see Port Marion uh, because of the prisoner. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, that's a gift that Port Marion, you know, the, the, the Port Marion aspect, because, I mean, I can't think... I'm struggling to think of another situation. I mean, people will talk... About, you, can go to, you can go to Tunisia, can't you? And yes, actually go to the Star, the Star Wars, Wars yeah, set yeah. and stuff. I can't really think of many other places. No, because most the, are sets that are built and then yeah, and destroyed. destroyed, or destroyed or, yeah. yeah, so it's got this absolute unique factor, uh, which is... I think it's, that plays a huge part... In the, in the continuing uh, popularity of the prisoner. But here's an interesting thing. 1981, did you know 
that the Scala Cinema in King's Cross, quite renowned for showing like alternative features and things like that, mm-hmm. showed five episodes in one afternoon in 1981. A prisoner, a sort of prisonerama sort of day. Yeah. In fact, one of our Twitter followers talks about this. Indeed, Daniel. Mm. Uh, so the last five episodes. In one afternoon, Harmony, Anvil, Girl, Once, Fallout, at the Scala Cinema, King's Cross, November 1981. In the deep end. Indeed. Christ. What a selection to show. Harmony. I mean, if you were going to show five episodes, they, would, they wouldn't be those five episodes, or maybe I two of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then in 1982, The Girl Who Was Death was shown as part of the Best of British ITV series. A little bit like the TV Heaven yes. show in, uh, in 1992. Look, stop me if you've heard this one before, says a series of repeats on ITV in the summer of 1982 entitled The Best of British. The Girl Who Was Death was shown late one Friday night. I was 11. I loved it. The following year, Channel 4 repeated the entire series and I've been a fan of The Prisoner ever since. Good man. Yeah. Andrew remembers watching this when it was first shown, and he says, I remembered as the show where the balloons swallow people. The penny farthing at the end stayed with me too. Not then seen till the girl who was death was shown, and immediately bought the precision video release of Arrival and many happy returns. The prisoner, trapped in a village from which there is no escape, where he is forced to join a game of chess. Here, nothing and no one can be trusted. To steal information from the prisoner, they manipulate his mind. The prisoner is framed and accused of a serious crime. The sentence is to relive his childhood. The precision videos were odd because they stitched two episodes together and turned it into like a movie length. Oh, God. Yeah, it was an odd... Um, as in, as in there, there wasn't just one after the other. They would actually get rid of the, the yeah. end titles from the first one and just go straight into the other one. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about those, those video releases. But, yeah, they were the first uh, VHS releases. Actually, I've got some... Uh, for the first time in this entire podcast, I have notes here, um, reliable notes as well, because you wrote them. <laughs> um, Shh. Well, here we go. The episodes <laughs> on this precision thing. Uh, Arrival in Schizoid Man... Hmm. Released under the title The Arrival. Yeah, the, the who, actual... Who on earth was in charge of this? The cover says The Arrival. Oh, God almighty. Checkmate and free-for-all. Eh, could have worked. Release the checkmate. Many have returns A, B and C. And China's a big Ben and the Gen... This, that's, that's the definition of the word hodgepodge. You'd think, wouldn't you, you put A, B and C and the General together? Well, yeah. That, that would make sense. That, that would actually make a certain amount of sense. So yeah. you put the General first as well, I think. I'd love, to, I'd love to see a copy of these just to see how they were edited. eBay? Maybe. I don't I, have a VHS player, though. I, I have a, I still got a video player. <laughs> oh, well, let's get one. Yeah, let's oh, get, fantastic, right. We'll <laughs> report back next week. But they used to do that with the Doctor Who videos as well. I mean, one of the first Doctor Who VHS releases was Revenge of the Cybermen, the Tom Baker episode. Yeah. And all four episodes were then stitched together into a feature-length version, so 25, you know, 100 minutes, basically. By the BBC? By or? the BBC on video, yeah. Because this sounds to me like somebody... Uh, you know, we know when people who don't care at all somehow mm. acquire the rights to stuff. Yeah. And, then, and you get this awful, <laughs> shoddy, sort of broadcast onto a pair of tights quality yes. f- film put out. <laughs> even on, even on, on, on remastered for Blu-ray. Yeah. And they've, they've put two M's in remastered because it clearly hasn't been. You bought it down the market. Yeah. <laughs> 1983 is a little bit of a watershed year, though. 
because up until 1982, as we said earlier, the UK only had three television channels. 4.40pm on the 2nd of November 1982, a fourth channel launched with the exciting and original name... Channel 4. Channel 4's remit was to be a little bit more edgier than the other three channels, take more risks. Monday the 19th of September 1983, they showed The Prisoner. Ah, and it was born anew. Yes, I think it was. I think think it had gone through the period of, uh, of perceived failure and I think it had been rediscovered by quite a lot of kind of important influential people as well as audience members who had taken it to heart. Obviously, Six of One was running by now. Mm. But that re- the re-showing was, I think people were, what, there would have been a, you've got to watch this. And, you know, dads would have said to their sons and older brothers would have said to their younger siblings and stuff like that, you, this, you've got to see this. Yeah. This is ace. There's a balloon which eats people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but and I, th- I think that it's suddenly after this, you'll start to see this prisoner references and things just reappearing all over contemporary culture. It was, this, was, this was the bite point, I think. Andersonic Fanzine says, I'd read about it in Fantastic Films and other mags. Caught the one-off girl who was death showing, circa 82. So that would have been the best of British, which left me totally bamboozled. But wanting more. Good on Channel 4 for showing the lot. Indeed. And Ron agrees. He says, The first time I watched the whole series was when Channel 4 showed it in the early 80s. I seem to remember seeing odd episodes before, possibly late at night. And next week's Prisoners at the slightly later time of 5 past 10, with a helicopter bringing a new arrival in the chimes of Big Ben at 5 past 10. Alison says, The Channel 4 reruns and subsequent availability on video really got me hooked. McGowan gets a lot of flack because of his unwillingness to have love interests. But this has meant that it is a rarity for its time in that it is not cringingly sexist and female characters could be as mad, bad and dangerous to know as the men. Plus, McGowan is awesome. So much gravitas, way ahead of its time. Yes, thank you, Alison, friend of the show. And that's a great uh, point. Yeah. Uh, I remember reading when she, uh, she put that on Twitter, I think, and yes... And it's something that's not uh, really discussed, is it? No, no. I mean, we, we've talked about why, you know, McGowan's kind of um, prudishness, possibly. But the effect of it is absolutely right. I mean, you do watch a lot of um, 70s ITC shows. And, of course, you, your mind goes back to the, the Harry Enfield sketch. Mm. Like, the Playboys. <laughs> yes, you loved it, didn't you? Yes. But a lot of, I mean, I'm thinking of Randall and Hopkirk mm. and Mike Pratt, bless him, in his karate gears under some... Dolly birds sort of walking yes, around, there. and it was yeah. just you hold your head in your hands sometimes. You go, "Oh my god!" But none of that in the prisoner. No, the women are treated generally um, on the same level as the men. Yes, which is quite ahead of its time. And of course, we, we've discussed this. Rachel Herbert, you've got Mary Morris, you've got these female figures, Mrs. Butterworth. Yes, you know, um, and the girl who was death, Justine Lord, are all as equal or as dangerous yeah. as number six. Yeah, none of this kind of you know failing the Bechdel test as we you know yeah, uh, yeah. kind of uh, female written characters. The writers that Mark Stein and McGowan had brought in, or I think the quote was, "Those with a certain bent of mind," mm. because they weren't danger man writers. They were writers who were a little bit more forward thinking. Yeah, like Roger Parks and Vincent Tilsley. And they were already thinking, well, why are we writing women like this? Let's write them yeah. in a different way. I mean, it could have been one of uh, McGowan's great exceptions to playing Bond. Mm. Was this? Uh, the, uh, Roald Dahl famously said, "Was the, the, you know, there's one, there's 
the, the first there's, there's, there's three usually three girls one to, to play around with at the beginning mm. one to die and then the one who survives at the end yeah. and it's as it's as uh, brutally unromantic and as yeah. sexist as, as, as all that yeah and it was the the treatment of women in one films was was largely, you know, pretty pretty ropey by today's standards. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, but, I think, I think you know, you could argue there is still a little bit of that old traditional Bond thinking in some of the it, later films. Yeah, yeah, but um, certainly that doesn't exist in The Prisoner. No. There's a very 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 salient point there by Alison David. Says, I used to be a regular user of Channel 4's Oracle te- Teletext. Oh. As was I, I used to love that. <laughs> yes. There was an end, um, oh, oh, I don't think maybe the Oracle, I used to do, I think I was a CFAX man. But yeah, there was, it was they had an, ent- the biz, mm-hmm. they had an entertainment page which would re- refresh usually about a certain time. It was the internet of its day though, wasn't it? It was, it was. And uh, one day I noticed a preview of a show that looked like uh, something I'd watch. The preview ended with, but watch out for the bubbles. I was hooked from that moment on. <laughs> Phil says, Channel 4, 1980s. Mind-blowing. Brevity is the soul of wit. <laughs> I know you've got 240 characters, but you know what? <laughs> Phil, I think Phil, you've nailed it. I think you have. <laughs> There's nothing more to say. He, yeah, I, I think that's how we experienced it. John was 10. My mum introduced it to me when Channel 4 repeated it. She was a fan of it from when it was first on. That summer holiday, we visited Port Merion... Disappointed it was smaller in real life. Well, it's the way they... I, I, it's, it's the way they shot it, It's ingenious, it? the way yeah. they made it look huge. Still, it was exciting to visit somewhere I'd seen on TV. Indeed. And it is... That's the one thing. You are surprised by the scale. Yeah. Because it is tiny mm. compared to what you see. I mean, the use of the lenses in in The Prisoner and the exterior scenes give it this, It's you know, uh, yeah, rate of scope, vista. I mean, doesn't the, it? The, 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 I'm sure there have, there have been scenes in a prison where they've just been walking around the the, the quad, yeah. just endlessly from and, and, and entering it and leaving it. So Jack Caramac, <laughs> that, that, which I, is the best, yes. the best name. Yeah, follow follow this guy on Twitter. He's very 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 funny. Um, it was very early '80s, I think. Uh, Sudden TV started repeating it quite late at night after the news. The trailer looked intriguing, and my old man moaned about that bloody rubbish, which, of course, made me suddenly even more interested. Caroline first saw The Prisoner on Channel 4 uh, when they rebroadcast the whole series. It's been very influential on my life. It made me question events and the world around me in a different way and with an alternative perspective. True. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really has. I mean, th- there are times when... I can't think of individual cases, but when you read something or read about something or see something, very often I kind of think I'll process it through a prisoner prism. Yeah. yeah. A prison room. But it's a show that grows with you as an adult, I think. Mm. And seen it as a kid. And then, you know, in our late 40s now, we're seeing the show differently to how we saw it as 17-year-olds. Yeah. You know, it has much more meaning, not just nostalgia, but also the fact that our life experiences tie to certain events that happen within the prisoner. Yeah. But finding your place in the world, yeah. finding your place as an individual, do you, you, you know, do you aspire to be an individual? Do you want to be an individual or do you follow the crowd? Do you wear all the branded... So do you fit in? Do you keep up with the Joneses? Do you mm. want to be, you know... What's, what's the quote? Better to be yourself than a pale imitation of somebody else. Yes. You know, and, and, and a lot about individuality is within the prisoner. Mm. And, and I think it's a good kind of moral guidebook in some cases as well. Yeah. I mean, how we you, view you, the world. You could, you could kind of set the clock of your life to 
the the lessons, if you will, for, of, of the prisoner and mm. uh, and do very well out of it. Going back, actually, going back to what Sir Jack says mm. about there, there's, I, I think a lot of older people, a lot of dads mm. back then, when it was first shown, would have thought that it was a load of uh, uh, cobblers. Yes. Which would have made you kind of, as a kid, slightly on the rebellious, rebellious edge, yes. thinking, oh, well, I really like it then. So let's hear from someone who saw the show during this period, Rick Davy of the unmutual.co.uk. Like so many, I came across it in the early 80s on Channel 4, so it would be 1983. I've got two brothers, one's five years older, one's ten years older. The ten years older one had seen it in the 70s. And he says, I'll ask your mum if you can stay up tonight. Because he knew I was kind of into kind of sci-fi weird stuff. I really like Sapphire and Steel at that point. So I'm sure yeah. I show you know. You know, I was like, like Doctor Who, Blake Seven at that time, which hasn't dated as well as the other shows that I mentioned. And he said, ask your mum if you can stay up tonight. There's a thing on called The Prison. You'll really enjoy it. Of course, it was, I think it was on it, 10 or 11 o'clock. So I was only 10 years old. That's quite a, a late time to be staying up in the early 80s. Mm. Um, but thankfully, um, uh, my dad was working abroad and he was the stricter one of the two. And my mum said, oh, yeah, he's <laughs> <laughs> So me and the next brother up, who's five years older than me, stayed up and watched Arrival. And even though I was only 10 years old, it absolutely blew me away. I, I hadn't seen anything like that. I still haven't at the age now of 48. I still haven't seen anything which was clearly telling me something above and beyond this is just a straightforward spy action thriller. I got that at 10 that it was trying to tell me something. And we had a, a top-loading Akai VHS recorder in those days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, but it was really temperamental. We'd record stuff, but we wouldn't know whether it actually recorded properly or not until after it finished and we wound the tape back to play it. Sometimes it recorded it perfectly. Sometimes it recorded without sound. Sometimes it recorded sound but no picture. Sometimes it recorded neither and we just had a fuzzy, a fuzzy screen. Luckily, it did record Arrival. So the next day, I went to school. It would have been a Tuesday, I think, the following day. Came home, watched it again. I watched it three times before the second episode was, was shown on Channel 4 a week later because I knew it was really important. I wanted to kind of watch it over and over again to see what I'd missed. And I still think that's true today. If you put Arrival on now, I still spot things I'd never spotted before. I'm sure you both see things. <laughs> oh, yeah. What was really odd about the yeah. Channel 4 screening is that I'm sure you, you have covered lots of times and we'll cover it again. What is the perfect ordering of episodes? And yeah. what was baffling about Channel 4 in 1983 was that they put many episodes returned second, which to us as seasoned fans now just seems incredibly weird. But many yeah. happy returns for the second episode screened in 1883. Um, and that episode obviously must come much later because he's, he, you know, he's, he's getting out for the first time in ages or whatever. But that didn't bother me when I was 10. Many Happy Returns is such a fantastic episode that yeah. that gripped me even more because I thought, what is this? I've just watched an episode where there's nobody speaking for the first half of the episode. The second half of the episode, I'm trying to work out who he is and who he works for. And then he gets, he's back at the end, he's, he's put back in the village again. I thought this was, as a 10-year-old, the most thrilling drama I'd ever seen. Add that to the fact that I'm already scratching my head over Arrival, having seen it three times, to say, this is telling me something. I'm not quite sure what it is because I'm only 10, but I know it's trying to tell me something. So that was my first experience of The Prisoner, was those two episodes absolutely hooked me and then obviously watched the rest of the series. But with my temperamental video recorder, only about half the episodes actually came out. Yeah. Being 10 years old, I didn't have access to fandom, other people with video copies or whatever. No one else in my school other than a rather odd chap called Nick 
also watched it. Um, and I didn't kind of want too much to do about to do, to do with him with it. Um, so I had my brother to talk to um, about it, and he was enjoying it as well. But again, he you know he would have been fifteen, so he didn't have access to, to to fandom, which was kind of very active in those days. People swapping tapes at conventions, I'm sure. So I only had half the episode, which I, I kind of religiously rewatched and rewatched all the time. And then in about what eighty six, eighty seven, um, Channel Five bought out the series a tape at a time. Their, their tagline was videos for under £10 and you could buy sort of two episodes for £9.99. Although Fallout was a, was a rip-off because that was £9.99 just for one episode. Yeah, for one I, episode. I, I can believe that. Yeah. yeah. So just, that, at that point, uh, you know, I could then watch the entire series, but I, I really kind of grew up on half of the episodes and I didn't have the last two tapes. So a lot of episodes, do not forsake me being one of them, I, I hadn't seen for a few years. And I'd seen other episodes, you know, probably... 30 or 40 times, you know, when you're 10, you watch the same things over yeah, and over yeah, again. I've got a 12-year-old and he's constantly just watching the same things over and over again. It's just what you do, isn't it? I knew that what I was watching was important. I knew I hadn't seen anything like it. I didn't know then that I would never see anything else like it for the rest of my life. Still haven't. But yeah, it spoke to me, unlike any series has done before or since. I think Rick's experience, like many other people, is having, you know, like one of our uh, previous Twitter followers said about being allowed to watch, yeah. asking their dad if they could stay up, having a family member saying, oh, you'll like this. It's well, that, really yeah, good. that always made it a bit special. Yeah. Because you were sort of, you are being less into a club. I, I thought of something recently. When I was about 14, mm. I always liked films, but when I was 14, I started getting Premier Magazine. Oh, yeah. Which was an American import. And it was very much, I mean, you had people like Peter Biskin writing for it. Mm. It was kind of quite highfalutin, mm. very New York East Coast kind of um, quite an intellectual read. It wasn't gossipy or anything like that. It was, it was for grown-ups. Yeah. And um, because I was fourteen, I kind of felt I was, I was kind of moving up a step. I remember the same thing when I bought. I remember buying Wicked Game by Chris Isaac, <laughs> um, single and Woolworths, and, and yes. realizing that this was a perfect record, but it wasn't pop music. It wasn't what yeah. I should be listening to as a kid. And these little cultural touchstones kind of uh, help you into adulthood yes. and help kind of create your adulthood. And it's when you start to put, a, put aside childish things. Mm. And The Prisoner was one because I knew that it, was, it wasn't just like watching oh, Baywatch or whatever else mm. was on at the time. This was something more grown up. And I, by getting into it, I was kind of accelerating my, my, my growth, getting out of adolescence a bit. And it's a bit. It's, there's something about that, when, especially when your dad says you're getting permission to stay a bit late yeah. to watch something. It's like, Ooh. So Rick wasn't the only person who was hooked by the prisoner in the 1980s. Let's hear from the author of the official prisoner companion, Robert Fairclough. Uh, yeah, I was at art college because it would have been the original Channel Four run. About I think it was about ten o'clock on a Monday night. So I had a little black and white telly, and I was, you know, I was even sharing a room. You know, this is how impoverished it was. You know. And um, I just watched it on, watched, so I watched it all in black and white, which is how everyone watched it, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, but initially I'd come to it before that because it was 82, I think, there was a season called The Best of British on ITV. It was sort of during the Olympics and they were basically trotting out old TV shows to fill gaps in the schedule. And they showed The Girl Who Was Death and I was just blown away. I mean, I'd never seen anything like that. I mean, I was a big, you know, big Doctor Who fan, but... I, but this was filmmaking, you know. This, mm. this was cinema for the small screen, you know. That title sequence was just like nothing I've seen before on a, on a TV show, and it, you know, it, it still looks really modern. It's really pacey, and it's and just you know the, the, the camera angles and stuff. It was just 
whoa. And of course, you know, the girl who was death is completely unrepresentative of the rest of the series. <laughs> yes. But, but I mean, weirdly, I found it very tantalising because the only bit you see of the village is a bit right at the end. And I thought, oh my God, this is fantastic. I want to see the rest of this, you know. What I didn't realise until much later was, you know, the bit where the record talks back to him. The really early Mission Impossibles didn't have a tape. They had a record that gave um, uh, Mr. Phelps or the guy before him, I can't remember his name, gave them the order. So I don't know if that was McGowan actually sort of, you know, actually reacting against Mission Impossible. So, I mean, but it's, it's just fantastic. And it's really funny. And yeah, McGowan's performance yeah. in that is really funny. It shows you how good he was at comedy, particularly the bit when he's about to be sick in the... Oh, you'll be sick, sir. I mean, and, and again, um, it, well, it's, it's a very convoluted. You see, the trouble with the prison, there's so much that's myth and so much as well, it did actually happen. Mm. But perhaps the girl of death was written as, um, or the girl who was death, was they want to do it as a 90 minute TV movie, which is why there's all that extra stuff in the script, because there's loads of stuff set in a maze, isn't there? And a, no. um, he gets attacked by a lion. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and it's just. Oh, I, I just thought it was, I mean, I'd seen the event. I think I must have seen the Avengers. Yes, I probably have. But I just thought this was on a kind of different level because of all the self-awareness. This spins the road around, you know, that's obviously calling to attention the fact that it was shot against a, a yeah. backdrop, you know. I, I loved it. I mean, and the only my only kind of, again, contact with the real story of The Prisoner after that until those repeats on Channel 4 was the three novels because that, that was all I could find, you know. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we weren't at the point of people... Oh, I'm pretty sure it's safe to talk about this now. People bootlegging videos or anything, you know, it was like there was nothing else really. I think there's a feature in Starlog. There might have been a feature in Starburst, I seem to remember. That was it. So it really, I mean, it takes a lot to catch, well, it doesn't take a lot to catch my imagination, but it, it really did capture my imagination, you know. It's like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. So that's basically what propelled me into, into, doing, into doing the books, you know, and everything else I've done since. So. And if you haven't read the book, it is, it's one of the, I would say it's on the key texts. It's the it's it's, it's book one. Yes. If you if you don't own any, I mean, we're going to talk about books in a, a later episode. But mm. just to cut to the chase, if you don't have any prison books and you're interested, that is the first book you buy. It is indispensable. So we're now in the mid 1980s. The prisoner shop is now fully open in Port Marion, and as people arrive, they can go and buy memorabilia and pictures from the series and things like that. And Jim remembers that his childhood home was on the outskirts of the village. Max, from the prisoner's shop in Port Marion, used to lend me the videos. That's lovely. <laughs> so that would be Max Aura, wouldn't it? Yeah. Six of One. Well, he's, he's the guy I bought my, uh, my, my You've Just Been Poisoned stickers from. Yeah. And uh, I mean, yeah, I think I bought some kind of book and it was, it was written by him. I, was like, I met him? Yeah. Apparently Halewyn Vaughan Hatcher. Uh, used to work there as well. She uh, did, yes. Yeah. Yes. But I remember going to the prison shop and seeing Max Hora and thinking, oh, I've seen him on TV mm, in yes, one of the prison but... documentaries. <laughs> so the, the British rock band Iron Maiden released a song in 1982 called The Prisoner and then released a song called Back in the Village in 1986. Yeah. And these were, believe it or not, gateway songs for some prisoner viewers. Indeed. Gavin being one. The Iron Maiden songs uh, had me interested, but it took a few years before I was able to see the show itself. I think my DVD set was the uh, 40th anniversary release. So that would have been 2007, wouldn't it? Yes, yes. Andy says, The first time I became aware of the show was through listening to the Iron Maiden song in the 1980s. It samples the show as an intro, but the lyrics have very little to do with anything in the show, but my interest was piqued. First saw it early 90s on Channel 4. Ah, good man, Andy. 
remembers the 1986 Channel 5 video releases. Oh. Uh, Channel 86, that makes sense. That's why they were yeah. so shoddy. But that was, it was a bookshelf But at least videos, they were separate episodes, like, unlike and, the Precision and, release. Yeah, in the right order as well. Yeah. And, and, and to be fair, it opened up The Prisoner to the home video market. It did, yeah. Because, you know, you had nine videos. You had 17 episodes, but you had nine videos. So uh, you had two episodes per video, apart from the finale, Fallout, which was on... Yeah. Video 9 on its own. I try to remember if I bought mine at Phase 1 in Wrexham. <laughs> yes. Uh, which hopefully, I'd love to think it's still going because yeah. that was a treasure trove. Or whether I sold mine yeah. to Phase 1 <laughs> to get rid of it. But uh, I, I remember the delight when I finally had the whole collection. Yeah. And my feeling of being terribly miffed that yes. Fallout was just one episode. I was crying out loud. But Channel 5 was a significant... Uh, VHS distributor. Oh, yeah. Uh, until 1991, when they were acquired by Polygram. Interestingly enough, in 1988, MPI released the series uh, as a set of nine laser discs, which they then repeated in 1998. Laser discs! Laser discs! Precursor to the DVD, wasn't it? Yes. Oh, God. Ed says, I was introduced to it by my friend back in 1991, got totally obsessed, and still am. In my TV favourites, only Doctor Who is better and only Twin Peaks is equal. Nothing else comes close. Mm. But that quite neatly brings us to our jumping on point, doesn't it? Yes, 1992. Yes, yes TV heaven. Absolutely knockout, knockout show. And uh, do you want a bit of trivia? Go on. Do you know when it came out? That, that episode, the last episode of TV Oof. heaven was The Prisoner. Oh, was it, sp- it was spring, I think? Randall. It was Saturday, the 2nd of May... <laughs> this is basically the 30th anniversary. Wow. 30 years we've been into The Prisoner. Good grief. This would have been the sugar in a tea moment. It's like, what was that? It makes our love letter episode. All the more poignant. Yes. And uh, standard practice agrees. Channel 4 did a TV Heaven Stroke Hell series. Uh, they aired The Girl Who Was Deaf. I don't know what was going on, but I was hooked. They showed the series not long after, uh, which I taped. This is me. Yeah. Maybe I am standard practice. Of course, I now have a million copies of it and I visit Port Marion twice a year. Standard practice, man, I'm with you. That's exactly yeah, what happened with us. Absolutely. I mean, with, with magnificent timing. Yes. Several months after having our interest peaked, mm. they start showing it. James says, I was around 14 years old, I reckon, when it was broadcast on Channel 4. Great gateway show for mm. me. Absolutely. It had by now acquired a sort of... Cult uh, status. Yes, yes. This is the thing, it had gone, like you, like you said... Uh, many, many pods ago. It was designed... It wasn't designed to be a cult. Mm. It was designed to be uh, a huge mainstream show. Yeah, yeah. But that's, that, that's what cult stuff is. It kind of finds its own natural audience. Yeah. Or as Luke Gray said, cinema for the small screen. Yes. But, I mean, sometimes things don't... Like cult films, movie drone, mm. you know, mm. God bless him. Yes. Uh, lovely Alex Cox. But that's exactly what it was. Some films just don't work and... And then through something, it's like water finding its level. Yes. Something, an audience will, who the, the intended audience will find it and they'll love it. Yes. Even more, particularly if it's a failure, because it's like, oh, well, you didn't just, there's that, that snooty record shop owner element of, oh, you just didn't get it. Yeah. I do. Yes. You don't, and you, you wouldn't understand <laughs> the it. The gatekeepers. Like, yeah. yeah you go off and watch Baywatch. Uh, token Ukrainian. Uh, had a similar experience. Channel 4 reruns in the 90s. I just left home for university. I got properly obsessed. I had two T-shirts that HMV in Manchester were selling alongside the video box set. I'd have liked one of those, wouldn't I? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I wore them to death. I remember one of my flatmates 
pissing himself <laughs> laughing about Colin Gordon's red telephone. <laughs> Quite right. Yeah, yes. <laughs> you, hang on. You can imagine you the student digs. What yeah. the hell are you watching? So that phone makes no practical Is that a phone? sense. <laughs> <laughs> Speckled Band says the nineteen ninety repeats in the last year of school. As a Beatles fan, I loved the weirdness and the use of All You Need Is Love in the soundtrack. Yes. So that, that would have been obviously Fallout. Oh, yeah, yeah. The following year, 93, Polygram, who then acquired the, the rights, released a VHS box set. Yeah. And this is the one that I had. Is that the one with this penny farthing on the on the on the spine? On the spine, yeah. yeah. It was five VHS tapes, three to four episodes per tape, rather than just two. Yeah. With a bonus alternative version of the Chimes of Big Ben, mm. which was obviously a little bit. You could tell it was. I mean, you well, think the originals in. look bad? <laughs> <laughs> that looked awful. It's like a daguerreotype. Um, <laughs> but um, and they also had it stitched on the end to kind of fill space uh, a mini kind of best of the prisoner, like a little clip show. Uh, to close out the set. But what is it quite interesting about this set? There are copies still available on, on eBay. It also includes the contact details for Six of One on the box set. Uh-huh. So another gateway. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, and that was a striking box set. It was five VHSs, with, like you say, with penny farthing. I remember gold. it was beautiful, and I, yeah. I, I remember immediately thinking my Channel Five box set looked awful you by comparison. To, yeah. so I want that one now. Yeah, but I, you know, like, I couldn't bring myself to. <laughs> to splash out. I think I got it for Christmas. Oh, but you were delighted. Yeah, 93 that was. Well, yeah, I mean, that would have been on the back of the... the I mean, oh, the other thing is, of course, by that point, I had already taped them. Yeah. And sort of designed uh, the, yeah. That, yeah, the stickers. And by this point as well, I'd already started going to Port Merrin. Yes. So I was, I was invested at yes. this point. I was, I was, I'd signed on. I was all in. Um, Exo 6 Future Spy I borrowed a Danger Man video cassette from the local library and became hooked on Mr Magoo after that I had to find out what this prisoner thing was until then I'd been only vaguely familiar with it from a spoof on a sitcom called 2.4 Children Loz says weird as it may seem I was introduced to the prisoner when brackets <laughs> and keep in mind it was the mid 90s those brackets <laughs> Matthew Corbett inexplicably decided to devote an episode of Sooty to it. <laughs> I, had to, I had to check this up. I had to check this on YouTube. Is it there? <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay, so 1995, the Sci-Fi Channel launches in the UK. Bravo Channel, which came in about 85, hosted a cult weekend and reinvented itself. Satellite stations, Bravo and the Cypher Channel, showed the series in the 1990s. So Satellite was now starting to... Be to Sky show, B. Yeah, be Sky B, yeah. <laughs> starting to show the prisoners. So, of course, it was opening up. Christopher says, I hate to admit this now, but it was through references to it on Manson's album Six in 1998. And if you're familiar with that cover, it's got uh, at number six sat in the Arneo chair playing chess and McGowan in his jacket at the, on a top level and a penny farthing in a um, stained glass window. Yeah. 2000 saw the release of the Carlton DVD. Yes, which I've only just junked in, into a charity shop. <laughs> 2002, the 35th anniversary. This is Rob Fairclough's book mm. on the same uh, same year as BBC4 launching. Yes. So let's speak to someone who discovered the show around this time. Port Merricon organiser, Anthony Briley. 
growing up, I'd always heard you know, family members, I'd mentioned this weird program that didn't make sense with a big white balloon. And it was, it was it two and a half children? Was it? Oh, 2.4 children. 2.4 children, yeah. I'd seen that with it in and that was kind of weird and odd and strange. And then I saw it advertised for the, the sci-fi channel and I'd always liked weird things and odd things. I always kind of never really went with the uh, kind of what was popular, always slightly odd thing. So I thought, I'm going to have to watch this, you know, <laughs> this weird thing that no one understands. I'm going to have to give it a go. Literally from the first episode, I was just completely hooked. In a sense, it's weird, but it makes sense. And it, and one of the things that McGowan always said was he, he wanted the series to ask questions of the viewer. And that was kind of one of the things that really got me into it as well, because especially around the time, it'd be what, I'd have just left college, gone to university and had studied politics at A-level, so always had an interest in that sort of thing anywhere. I just got completely hooked with it. It was yeah. just weird and odd, and it asked questions. The first set I got was, a, I think it was a Channel 5 box set, which I found on eBay when it was kind of, it was a, literally a car boot sale online. <laughs> and so I'd got that. And I think that's actually how I found Six of One on the back of one of them. It had the Six of One details. Well, that's where I saw, that's where I kind of how I found out about Six of One. I saw it on the back of this Channel 5 VHS box sets, and I thought, I wonder if they're still going. Had a quick look online found them and thought I'll join see what happens found out they do a convention so I thought one year I'll go along give it a go and that you've been every year since (laughs) I was back in 2000 2003 was my first one wasn't one in 2004 but then from 2005 onwards been every year key dates now as we're running up towards Present yes. day. Prisoner in the 21st century. We've got the unmutual.co.uk website launches, founded by artist Lou Stringer, who produced art for Oink. Do you remember Oink comic? I Charlie did. Brooker worked on that, didn't he? He did, yeah. I, I remember I got the first one, I had a, fle- a flexi disc. Flexi disc, yes. On the, on the front. Yes, I had that as well. <laughs> um, but he also worked for Marvel, Beano, Dandy, Viz, Doctor Who magazine. Um, and then the unmutual, the webmaster then. Uh, duties were taken over by Rick Davey, who yes. we've spoken to. Yes, and 2004, BBC4 and BFBS2. Which is the British Forces Broadcasting Service. They showed the series. Yes, they did. Yeah. I remember that. 2005, the D. Agostini, uh, that's the magazine company. You know, they do like the Beatles that's, collection. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like... They're doing Dylan vinyl albums now, yes, I think. Yes, they are, aren't they? Yeah, which is great. But they released a DVD magazine tie-in series every fortnight containing individual episodes. So again, it was on newsagent shelves. Oh, why didn't I buy that? I don't know. I don't even think I was aware of no, that. No, because I, I, just just for the books themselves mm. or the magazine, that, that would have been fascinating. And then 2007, which is the 40th anniversary, uh, the Prisoner 40th Anniversary Special Edition DVD box set is released. Yes, featuring standard definition versions from high definition masters created by Network. Yeah, Network.co.uk. Yes, yeah. go and check it out if you love cult television. Cult films, they've got a, a range of, yeah. of, of things. Uh, it, most of them now. It's, it's quite nice. It's actually, this is, network is, is kind of, th- these places have finally found their home. Yes. Someone who, yes. who, who is a, a loving curator yeah. as opposed to someone who's just been handed the rights yes. as part of a package. 2009 then saw the complete series released by Network on Blu-ray for the first time in the United Kingdom. Then 2017, the 50th anniversary Blu-ray set was released. Yeah, and that was, that was a particularly... Uh, that was a, a particularly good year. I think for the convention they had Peter Wingard making his final public appearance. And then 2021, Wandering Planet Toys Kickstarter. But this, these are the figures and there's a rover available. Yes. But it shows that, 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 you know, as we've talked about before, the figures are becoming yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a reality. 
Uh, and that brings us up to date, really. In March 2022, the Horror Channel in the UK runs the show weeknights with omnibus editions on Saturdays. In not quite the right order. Not quite the right order, but <laughs> that's their order. And, and, you know, we'll let them have that. Yeah. So that's it. That's our chronology, our yeah. jumping on points of when the prisoner, you know, when people had that connection to the prisoner. When we fell in love. Yeah. And it will be forever. And if you are, you know, if you want to uh, explore, there's the Six of One Appreciation Society website. There's the unmutual.co.uk around there. If you are into YouTube reaction channels, you can check out Afterbuzz TV um, or the Post Geek Singularity or, or the Movie Archaeologist, who does very similar things to what we're doing, analysing uh, each episode. There are other podcasts available, not just our own. So check out things like uh, Time for Cakes and Ale, Slash the Tally Ho, The Eternal Village, Once Upon a Time, Be Seeing You, my favourite title, The Village People. <laughs> so big thank you to Dave Barry, Rick Davey, Robert Fairclough and Anthony Briley for giving us their time and talking about their experiences of how they discovered the prisoner. Yeah, and thanks also to all, uh, all you Twitter followers who've been, um, who've been getting in touch. We love you. We really do. Thank you so much. Free For All podcast was presented by Kai Ross and Chris Bainbridge. The theme tune was by Gordon Milton and special thanks to Jemima Duncar for the artwork. Please see, see you. you. You can find us on Twitter at Free For All Pod or on Facebook at Podcast Free For All.